Well, the Bible calls preaching a foolish thing. <laughs> and I think that's what he meant, because it's like, hey, you don't want to start preaching <laughs> when you're in this. What? presence is so sweet this morning. The Holy Spirit, just speak. Speak through me, speak through your people. to continue to be aware of your presence this morning as we hear your word in Jesus name thank you guys that was like crazy <laughs> um, I can't remember who it was but maybe Maybe about six months ago, somebody said something along the lines of, somebody was giving a word during the worship here, and they said, you know, it's not good enough just to sing a song. It's not good enough just to come to church and sing a song to Jesus, that worship is a lifestyle, right? And that's a phrase that's almost become a theme in the worship culture in churches across the United States, that worship is a lifestyle. And so I started to ask the Lord, yeah, but what in the world does that even mean? You know, what does that look like? How does that translate to my Monday through Saturday life? Because I can sit and say worship is a lifestyle and walk out and not change a single thing about the way that I live, right? We can have encounters with the Holy Spirit. We can shake, tremble, speak in tongues, prophesy, and leave here and not change. And uh, his response to me kind of took me off guard. I wasn't expecting it. Um, I said, what does it mean, Jesus? Holy Spirit, what does it mean? And he said, worship means taking responsibility. And um, I've done some pretty extensive studies on grace, and so that, that statement, like, really butted heads with my grace theology, you know, because I'm like, grace, God did it, right? But uh, he said worship means to take responsibility. So just lay some, some ground, some foundations for worship is, we don't worship to make God happy, okay? We do not worship to make God happy. Happiness is satisfaction. God was completely satisfied with the finished work of the cross. He is eternally happy and satisfied. There is nothing that you can offer to make God happier. <laughs> He's already happy. So if you have an uh, image in your head of God looking down on you, trying to figure out what's wrong with you, or an image of God not being pleased with you, then you have a wrong foundation for worship. The picture that we should have in worship is a happy father with his arms open, waiting to receive his children and love them unconditionally. And, you know, something he said to me recently was that my love is not only unconditional, but it doesn't hesitate. <laughs> There's no part where God is like, wait up, hold up a minute, let me, let me get myself together and then I can love you. Or let me get you together, and then I can love you. There's none of that with God. His love doesn't hesitate. 
So when we talk about taking responsibility, it means that we have an ability to respond to God. It's so simple, but it's, it's so good because worship is a gift that God gave us. We thought we were giving God something. How many people thought that, that when you worship, you're giving something to God? All you're doing is returning something to God because you can't add to God. You can't give him anything that he doesn't already have. He owns everything. He has everything. He can't get bigger. He can't get better. Right? So if I can't give, all I'm doing is I'm giving back to God what God has given to me. And so worship is this profound gift that God has given us not to better himself, but to better our lives, to make our lives better, to make our lives more peaceful, more joyful, more powerful, more contagious. Um, so we got to go back a little bit and look at what worship looked like. And they sang the song this morning, he tore the veil, you know, he tore the veil. Um, so just to make sure everybody understands what happened. When they came out of Israel, the people of God came out of Israel. Moses had delivered them from Israel from bondage. They came to Mount Sinai and the presence of God came on the mountain. And it says the people were scared. They were scared out of their mind. They were, they were afraid of the presence of God because his presence trembled the earth. It shook everything around them, and they were afraid, and they said, God, hold up, back up. You talk to Moses, and we'll listen to Moses. So if you want to know why God's presence wasn't available to people in the Old Covenant, it was because the people resisted God. It wasn't because God was too holy to encounter them. It wasn't because they were too sinful to be in the presence. It was because they said, God, we don't want you to be this close. You talk to Moses, the leader, and we'll hear from Moses. And so they had a tabernacle of meeting, and they had an outer courts, and they had an inner courts, and they had a holy of holies, right? And Moses would go into the holy of holies, and he was the priest of the Israelites, and he would encounter God, and he would hear God's voice, and he would experience the presence of God, and they would make sacrifice, right? And there was a veil that separated the presence of God from the rest of the temple. And that progressed until Solomon, when he built a physical temple, all the way through when Jesus showed up, right? And so you, there's stories about people, you know, they wore bells around their end of their garment, and if the bell stopped ringing, hey, the priest, he didn't make it because he couldn't handle the presence of God. And so it's just amazing how limited their access was to God because they resisted. They resisted. And uh, sin separates you from God in your own mind. Okay, because when Adam sinned, God came looking for him. We quote the verse that says, Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. If you look at the timeline of that verse, Adam walked with God in the cool of the day after his sin is where it says it. It doesn't, it's, it's not talking about it before, it's after he sinned. So God didn't say, you sinned, I have to separate myself. No, God said, you sinned. He came to Adam. He said, I want you, Adam. What's going on, Adam? Adam, where are you? And Adam says, hey, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. That brought the separation, a sin consciousness, right? So in the Old Covenant, the law, the Bible says, was brought to bring awareness to sin. It brings sin consciousness. 
and it brings awareness to your need for God. That's what the old covenant law was about. You don't want me? Okay, here's the law. Let's see if you can do it without me. Right? So they have this law. They're trying to follow the law. They can't follow the law, so they have to make sacrifices. So they've put themselves in this position of trying to satisfy God, a God that was already satisfied from the beginning, right? So Jesus goes to the cross, and I, there's no way I can say this to even do it justice, but Jesus goes to the cross and he says, it's finished. They didn't kill Jesus. Jesus gave his life. Okay, because when they tried to kill Jesus, the Bible says he walked right through them. I don't know what that means. If he became invisible, I don't know if he, you know, elbowed him out the way. <laughs> I don't know what he did, but all I know is a crowd of people were trying to throw him off a cliff. And in the next verse, it says he walked right through them. So whatever he did was supernatural. They couldn't kill Jesus till he was ready. They put him on the cross. He lasted longer on the cross than any normal human being could last. So they stabbed him with a spear to speed up the process, right? He was taking too long. But it says Jesus gave up the ghost. Jesus gave his life. And when he gave his life, the veil between the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was, and the rest of creation was torn from top to bottom. Everything changed in that moment because it was no longer about whether you resist God, whether you don't resist God, whether you live up to his expectations, where you follow all the rules and laws. It was God saying, I'm here and I'm staying and you're not getting rid of me. And my love is being poured out on all of humanity. That's why in Acts it says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So your unsaved coworker that you think is a heathen and has no chance of ever knowing Jesus, the spirit of God is being poured on that person as we speak. They may ignore it. They can ignore it. You can ignore it. We can ignore it. So God took me to this scripture in Colossians 3. Wait a minute. I'm going to skip that one. We're going to go 2 Timothy 3. It says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal despisers of God, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness but denying its power from such people turn away so look he's not talking about your unsaved co-worker that doesn't go to church that doesn't participate in anything to do with god he's talking about people that have an appearance that look like they're god's people but they deny god's power So they live a life that doesn't look like worship. It's not just talking about denying the power of the gifts of the Spirit or miracles or signs and wonders. It's talking about denying the power of the cross that gave us access to God's presence on a daily basis in any place. Come on now. <laughs> in any place. Do you understand how good that is? They had to go to a temple. They had to take their best livestock, which was their livelihood, 
kill it just to get appeasement and still couldn't get into the presence of God. The only person that did it in the Old Covenant that wasn't a priest was David because he tapped into a future reality of what Jesus had already done and he walked in a murderer and adulterer and ate the showbread. <laughs> I mean, David, David, is, he had the mindset of a worshiper. So the mindset of a worshiper is, I'm qualified. Okay? The mindset of a worshiper is, I'm qualified. I was created for this. I was designed for this, and I take responsibility for this. I take ownership of it. There's been a lot of talk about outward expression since I've been here, you know, and depending on what background you're from, denomination, whatever, the outward expression varies, right? And I've been praying about this a lot, and it's like, that's all you are, is an outward expression of the Holy Spirit. That's it. So if you don't want to be an outward expression, that's going to be frustrating in worship. I'm not necessarily talking about lifting your hands or running or jumping or things like that in church. I'm talking about the reality that Jesus, God, created you in the beginning. And the first thing he did was give you responsibility. Have dominion. Replenish the earth. Go ahead, name the animals. First thing he gave Adam was responsibility. He gave that to Adam before he gave him a wife. All right? So if you're single, you're looking for a wife, there's a key. <laughs> All right. But you take responsibility for what God has given to you and what God has put you in and where God has positioned you. So when I say responsibility, I'm not talking about you becoming responsible for your sins. Jesus is the ultimate worshiper. He's the number one worshiper, right? So he went and he took care of that part. He took responsibility for you so that you could take responsibility for the world that we live in. And that's what worship looks like. Hmm. So yeah, in Colossians chapter 3, there's a comparison that's drawn between a pre-Christ man and a post-Christ man. All right? And he says, if then you were raised, I'm starting in verse 1, says, if you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. I kind of like the old King James because he says, set your affections. It's a little bit more personal and intimate way of saying it. It's like, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and life is hidden with God and Christ in God. Hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In other words, he says, when you show up, Christ shows up. When Christ shows up, you show up. Right? I mean, that's what he's saying. He said, look, when, when, when Christ appears, you're going to appear with him in glory. How many think that's somewhere after you die or after a rapture or some other future event. How many? If you, if you thought that that was for later, when I read it, 
And I'm telling you, it's not for later, it's for today. Worship manifests God's glory. Okay, it manifests Christ. So you're like, all right, well, what, what am I supposed to do then? I'm supposed to like sing worship songs all day or, you know. And I know people that are like that, you know, they're real deep. Um, or like, like I, used to, I used to work with a lady, and this is what she did. I, I'm not knocking her, but, you know, somebody would challenge her at work, and she starts speaking in tongues in their face. <laughs> I'm like, I get what you're doing there, but it's not helping anybody. You know, you're not helping nobody with that. Um, but uh, when you show up, God shows up. And so it says, therefore, put to death your members which are in the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Whew. We like to avoid that kind of verse, don't we? In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you've put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whether you do in word or deed, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whew. I mean, that's a list, right, of do's and don'ts. <laughs> like, it's a list of do's and don'ts. Um, but... Basically, he's saying, like, if you're, if you're a new man in Christ, this is going to be the result of how you live. This is what a worship lifestyle looks like. And uh, I know I've, I've fallen short on this list plenty of times. You know, that's what grace and mercy is there for. It says mercy will follow you. You know, grace kind of goes in front of you, <laughs> cleans up your future, but mercy comes behind you, sweep up your mess, you know. So we need grace and mercy. And we need the Holy Spirit to live this out. So what God gave me was he gave me seven purposes of worship, um, why we worship, and what worship accomplishes in our lives. And I wanted to share those with everyone. Um, this, this is not anywhere near the whole list. You know, there, there could be a million reasons that God has, and maybe he wants to share some with you. That's my hope is that, like I said, I started this conversation with God like six months ago, and I don't want this to be me just telling you my conversation, but this is an invitation for you to join this conversation with the Holy Spirit about what worship looks like in your life, not just on Sunday mornings, you know? So it's great, look, this morning was amazing. If I could put them in my pocket and take them with me, I would. So, you know, y'all need to start working on an album in my playlist. <laughs> but, you know, that, that, that's amazing what happens on Sunday, and there's power in this corporate. But do you know there's corporate worship that happens when you're not with everybody outside of these walls? Because you're connected. If we're connected and we're in a family and we're of the same spirit, when you worship on your own, that's corporate worship still. 
You have no idea what your worship can do in somebody else's life. And God will put people on your heart when you worship and tell you to call them and check on them. And you'll find out that, man, that person really needed an encounter with Jesus in that moment. Right? Has anybody experienced that? Am I the only person? (laughs) I mean, this is real stuff, right? Like if we're going to call each other family, you know, we're going to act like we're together. You got to understand your worship out of here is corporate. Now, just a confession, I'm a terrible driver, okay? I'm from Maryland, all right? We don't drive good, all right? We drive crazy because we learned how to drive on the beltway, all right? So here, I'm like, oh, man, I got to slow down a little bit, be a little nicer, let people, you know. In D.C., you're like, come on, get it. So the other day, I drove in front of somebody, and the lady pulled up next to me, and she gave me this look like, man, I thought my mother was going to come out of nowhere and just whip me, you know. She gave me this crazy look, and I was like, oh, man. But I thought about that, and I was like, man, I really hope this doesn't impact anybody from the river. (laughs) But, you know, that's... That's how it is sometimes. We live our life and we're connected. And so our worship is connected, even when it's individual. There's a big focus in our society on the personal relationship with God. But the Bible doesn't really talk about that a whole lot. It talks about the body of Christ a lot. It talks about the family of God a lot. It talks about community a lot. It talks about all they did was sing songs, encourage one another, eat together, spend time with each other. It don't talk a whole lot about, I mean, there's a couple verses that talk about your personal relationship with God, but if you put them on the scales, it's not all about you, and that's, that's where God has taken me. So the first purpose I have, you know, I don't have a watch on, so... Somebody need to flag me down. Usually my wife keeps track of my time and gives me a look. So, Jim, you, you give me a nod. If I'm <laughs> give me something. <laughs> my wife got a thing where she's like, I'm like, okay. <laughs> but uh, the first one is magnify God. That's the first purpose for worship is to magnify God. Like I said, you can't make God bigger than he already is. Um, But a magnification glass doesn't change the size of something. It just changes your view of something. So what worship does is it changes the world's view. How many think we got some messed up world views circulating? (laughs) We got some messed up world views going around. And uh, we need God to be visible in our world. And so worship brings a worldview that makes Jesus the center. So if your worship promotes another view other than Jesus being the center, it might be idolatry. (laughs) Something to think about, you know? So you can't make God bigger, but our praise and worship It can elevate our perspective of God above the things that we're facing in this world. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to somebody about Jesus and their first response is, what about famine? What about war? What about disease? What about this? They immediately go to, your God can't be real because of all of this that's going on in the world, right? But it's because their perspective has not been magnified by worship. And so when you worship, you magnify God. Psalms 34, 3, it says, Magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Right? Magnify the Lord alone and let's exalt his name by ourselves. <laughs> that would be, well, if you read that in the Bible, you would be like, man, that seems kind of selfish, don't it? 
but that's not what it says. It says, exalt his name together. Psalm 69, 30 says, I'll praise the name of God with song, and I'll magnify him with thanksgiving. Acts 10, 46. You're going to have to go back and read this chapter, okay? You know, I like to give assignments when I teach. So, uh, Acts 10, 46. It says, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So, Peter, he's preaching to Gentiles. This is like the first time the gospel is being preached to people that weren't Jewish. And he says the Jewish people, the circumcised, were amazed because while he was preaching, the Gentiles got filled with the Holy Spirit, started speaking in tongues, and started magnifying God. And they couldn't believe it, that God would put his spirit in a Gentile. And so magnifying God is just a response to the presence of God. It's a, it's a natural response to the presence of God. The second thing I have is bring awareness to his presence. Awareness. One time I asked God, because I heard this preacher talking about the manifest presence of God. You know, he preached like the manifest presence of God. You know, the old school style of preaching. Um, and they were talking about how, you know, the Shekinah glory and if you look it up in the Old Testament, there was a moment where the presence of God came in the temple and all the priests were basically immobilized by the glory of God. They could not stand, they could not walk, they could not move. They were rendered useless by God's presence. And the word there is Shekinah glory. And it means the manifest presence of God. What it means is God is everywhere. Okay, that's the omnipresence of God. He is everywhere. Okay, he's in between the atoms that you're made of. He's the glue that holds you together. If God leaves, everything ceases to exist. I know we got some Avenger fans, right? Right? I mean, boom. Snap your fingers and boom, gone. Everything ceases to exist if God leaves. So we know we have the omnipresence of God, but the manifest presence of God, that's when God's presence becomes tangible. Okay? You can feel it. You know, some people get goosebumps. Some people get more than that. Some people feel fire in their body. Some people feel cold. I've been in services where I could smell the presence of God. It smelled like cinnamon oil to me. There are manifestations of God's presence where God becomes tangible. And you are the best example of God being tangible. When you feed somebody that doesn't have food, when you, when you love your family, you know, when you help somebody through a difficult situation, you bring awareness to the presence of God. Somebody that was thinking about their situation, now they're thinking about God. <laughs> they're thinking about Him helping them in their situation. Do you see how that shifted? I mean, you, I've had situations in my life where I was just desperate. I had a situation um, before I was saved where I was getting evicted and I was sitting on my couch and I was... Man, I was in the worst place I could possibly be. And uh, I woke up the next morning, and one of my friend's moms was in the, in the living room there with her Bible. I hadn't talked to her in like five years. She just showed up to my apartment and walked in and came in with her Bible, and she said, God gave me a word. And she said, Jeremiah 29, 11. And uh, I know the thoughts and plans I have for you. Because I, I thought, hey, if this is it, if this is all my life is, there ain't no point. It can, it can end right now. If this is it, and then she comes with, I know the thoughts and plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you. Plans to bring you into a future that you hope for. Woo! 
man, my focus shift from my situation to God's presence in a moment. Hebrews 6, 19, 20 says, The hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. The hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So what Jesus literally did is he went into the Holy of Holies, he made the ultimate sacrifice. The Bible says he sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat in heaven. He gave us eternal access, permanent access, so you no longer go in and out. See, I, me and Todd were talking about this, and it's like, we got to shift our mentality from going in and out of the presence of God. We can't think that way anymore. Because Jesus has eternally entered, and the Bible doesn't talk about him making an exit. And if we're in Christ, seated in heavenly places, and Jesus has not come out of the Holy of Holies, I need y'all, we got to get this. We don't live in and out of the presence of God. We don't live to have a vacation in the presence of God and then go back to dealing with our issues in our own strength. That's good. That's true. We don't live that way. We live from the presence of God, outwardly into the world. All right. You're God's tangible expression. You are God's outward expression. <laughs> you are God's outward expression. You know, the Bible talks about how Satan, who used to be Lucifer, was an angel. And he was in the throne room of God. And this is why people talk about, say that Satan is smart. I think Satan is an idiot. He's not smart. He's tricky and he's a liar, but he's not intelligent. Because he stood in the presence of God. He was right there in the throne room of God. And he had a thought, I'm better than God. What an idiot. He's an idiot. He's not smart. He's a liar, and he's tricky, but he's not smart. Okay, and he got kicked out. Here's what God does. He says, this guy thought that he was God. One of my creations thought that he was God. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to create a worshiper that really is like me, that's created in my image and my likeness, that's my tangible expression. And then I'm going to put Satan and the worshiper in the same atmosphere. And I'm going to let the worshiper loose on Satan. You got to switch your mentality. You think Satan has been let loose on you like a wild dog that's coming to get you. And he is an attacker and he wants the worst for you. But do you realize that God let you loose on Satan? He lies because he's scared to death of you. And if you start worshiping a lifestyle of worship, if we start living a lifestyle of worship, there's nothing that we can't do. I'm serious. What are the issues in this community that need to be fixed? Drug dealers. All kinds of stuff. Poverty. Child trafficking. This is where you become the tangible expression. I mean, can you imagine God having a pit bull at his front door like this? Satan comes up to the yard, and that pit bull's name is Worshipper. This is the picture you need to get in your head of who you are why you were created. You're God's soldier, you're his attack dog, you're his minister. 
He let that dog loose. You ever tied a dog to a tree for a year and then unhooked the chain? The dog will still stay because of the mentality. I'm here to tell you you've been let loose. You have been let loose. Listen, none of this stuff is in my notes, okay? So you need to understand this is the Holy Spirit talking. You have been let loose. So get out of your comfort zone and go find where God wants you to worship. The third thing I have is establish truth. So Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So here's a big thing, that truth, when God talks about establishing truth, there's a difference between a truth and a fact, okay? A fact is information that can be proven through observation, experimentation. A truth is a person named Jesus. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So truth is not something that you can intellectually know. There are scholars that know the Bible inside and out. They know the history. They know everything. But they don't know Jesus. Okay? So truth is a person. So we, worship means establishing a person in our life named Jesus. His truth becomes established in our life when we worship. When we live a lifestyle of worship, his truth begins to rule and reign over our decision making. I won't go this way, I won't do it this way because truth is established. John 5, 39, 40, this is Jesus talking. He said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Jesus said, you study the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. I mean, the implication is that you're not going to find eternal life in the scripture. Is that contrary to anybody's Christian belief? I mean, that really challenges me, right? But he says, these are the scriptures that testify about me. All right? Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So when you worship, you come to Jesus. The scripture is a sign, it's a pointer, it says, hey, this way. That's all it is. It doesn't even say everything. Todd talked about that a few weeks ago, how the scripture doesn't even say, it said they couldn't even fit. If they tried to write down everything that Jesus said and did, you wouldn't have enough books in the world to fit it. All right? So worship establishes truth. Worship establishes our identity in Christ. So we've talked about this over and over. We're seated in, with Christ in heavenly places. But I read that and it says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show. So the reason you're seated in heavenly places is so that God can demonstrate something so that God can show off something, so that God can express himself, okay? Establish your identity in Christ, seated in heavenly places. He might show the incomparable riches of his grace. This is what he wants to show off through your life. The incomparable riches of his grace. Now somehow we have to connect that to how we live in a practical way. I don't have that answer for you. You got to talk to Jesus. <laughs> All right. Expressing his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So he wants to show his kindness. 
I mean, how simple is that? You're seated in heavenly places so that God can be kind to people. How simple is that? Right? Man, it sounds simple when you say it, but when you try to do it, (laughs) that's when conflict comes. That's when turmoil comes. That's when opposition comes. Right? But kindness is what brings the world to repentance. So we want the world to repent. We want the world to change because that's what repentance means. It means a changed world. If we want people to be transformed, we got to use kindness. But that starts with understanding our identity in Christ. Because if you don't know your identity in Christ and somebody mistreats you, I'm, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of this, 100%. You know, thank God for his grace. That's why we had to condition our mind to say, hey, I'm seated in heavenly places. And if you're seated in Christ in heavenly places, I heard somebody say the other day that that means you're in the third heaven. I think it was Chris Valentin was teaching on this this week. But he talked about if you're seated in Christ in heavenly places, you're in the third heaven. And all the demonic powers and principalities and powers of the air they're in the second heaven, which means they're under you. So when you fight battles, you are not fighting uphill battles. But you're going down into an enemy camp and wreaking havoc. That's what worship does when you worship from your identity in Christ. You're descending into a place to establish the higher place. This is what Jesus said. He said he came down. He descended from a place to establish the rule of his place in a lower place. You're the conduit of heaven. Right? You are God's only choice (laughs) for this. He does not have a backup plan. You know, y'all remember picking teams when you're a kid for kickball? You know, how many people pick the smallest, least athletic person first? <laughs> you would never do that. If you're the captain, you get to pick. I want that big guy. I want that fast guy. Right? Until all that's left is the one guy that nobody wants on their team, right? So all of us feel like that guy sometimes that nobody wants on our team. And Jesus said, that's the one. He picked him first. I want that guy. Because when I win with that guy, everybody's going to know it's me. All right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, all through the Bible. That's what you see. Gideon was scared, hiding in a barn. And God said, no, I'm going to let you win a war with some pots and pans. I mean, that's incredible. Worship, this is the one I like. Worship, your worship produces transformation and freedom. So... If you need to get free, worship will produce that in your life. If the person next to you needs to get free, worship will produce that in their life. The woman at the well, she was not free when she met Jesus, but she was free when she left. And she went and told her whole city about a man that told her everything about her life. And Jesus said to her, she had a question. She said, where should we worship? Should we worship like our forefathers, because she was a Samaritan, right? So her forefathers worshiped on top of a mountain. They weren't allowed to worship in the temple. They worshiped on top of a mountain. And she said, or should we worship like the Jews who worship in the temple? And Jesus said, the time is now and it has come to worship in spirit and truth. In other words, I don't care if you're on a mountain in the temple 
church, house. I really don't care as long as it's in spirit and truth. And so spirit and truth, there's two verses. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? Liberty or freedom. So he says, I want you to worship in spirit because it's going to produce freedom. And he says, I want you to worship in truth. John 8.32 says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you. Isn't that amazing? How he just kind of put that in there? Like spirit and truth. In other words, I want you to be free. So whatever freedom looks like for you, that's what your worship needs to look like. If you want to run around the room, run around the room. I've been in churches, plenty of churches, where people, you know, you got that one lady in the back that's going hard and going off, you know. And then you got somebody that's in a high position, like a deacon or an elder, saying, I wish they would just calm down their worship. They're distracting everybody. I've been in lots of situations like that. I'm here to tell you that if you're distracted by somebody else's worship, then you have your attention on the wrong thing. Your attention should be on Jesus. And then maybe you can stop being jealous of what that person is experiencing and experience it for yourself. The comparison is killer. And it goes the other way, too. If you look at that person and say, man, I really wish I could worship like that person. But you don't feel free to worship like that person. Well, stop trying to worship like that person. You're still putting your focus somewhere where it doesn't belong. Put your focus on Jesus and worship the way that you worship. And be free. So worship will establish freedom. It'll break addiction off your life. Um, before I was saved, I would smoke two packs a day. I drink a case of beer every night and sometimes a fifth of liquor. That's how I lived for about three years. Every night. The day that I gave my life to Christ, I threw it all away and I haven't gone back since. Immediate break. And I tried to quit smoking on my own a bunch of times. And I would wake up in the middle of the night doing this. And go out on my patio and get a cigarette and just calm, calm it out. But when I gave my life to Christ, I quit, cold turkey, no withdrawals, no symptoms. I don't know if it works that way for everybody. It, it probably doesn't. But that's the way Jesus did it for me. I threw away everything in one day. And uh, he rescued me from it. So worship brings deliverance. You understand? There's going to be people that come in this church that need deliverance. And our worship will determine whether or not they get free. If they come in, if a person can come in, this group of people, this powerful group of people created and designed for worship, if they can come in and they can sit through 40 minutes of people loving Jesus, and 30 minutes of somebody preaching the gospel and leave and not be free when they leave? Woo! We got to look. We got to look at ourselves and say, hey, are we doing it? I, that's, that's responsibility. It's not, it's not a condemnation. See, sons, if you're a son in Christ, you take responsibility. And Jesus got baptized. The father came down and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That is a Hebrew phrase, okay? The fathers, when their son came of age, would take their sons into the marketplace and say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. What it gave the son permission to do, it gave the son permission to conduct business as if he was the father in the marketplace, so baptism is, it's about repentance, but Jesus was baptized and he didn't need to repent. He was without sin. So when you come into Christ, it's about taking a responsibility of your father's business. Of your inheritance in Christ. That's what worship is about. Worship is about you taking responsibility. 
So it produces freedom. Number six, draws the hearts of the lost back to the Father and abolishes the orphan mindset. Mm. I would need like three months to go through that one. But Romans 8.15, it says, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought you about brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 6 says, Because you're his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So when you worship, when you surrender to God, right, when you begin a worship lifestyle, when you start walking in a worship lifestyle, all the orphan spirit stuff can't survive. All the stuff that says I'm not a son, all the stuff that says I'm not good enough, all the stuff that says I don't deserve, Woo. all the stuff that says I'm not worthy, what determines the value of your iPad, the worth? how much you had to pay for it. Now, if you paid $800 for a brand new iPad, iPad Pro or something like that, right, and you keep it for six months, and then you try to sell it on Facebook, how much is it worth? How much? Right. So the value changed based on what people are what? Willing to pay, right? The worth is determined by what someone is willing to pay. So if you think I'm not worthy to worship, you need to look at the price that's been paid for your life. You need to look at the value that Jesus put on your life and how that value doesn't depreciate. You're not any less valuable now than you were then. Jesus determined the value that you have. So when you enter into worship, boom, boldly to the throne of grace. I get it. It's my inheritance. Come on, Jesus. I want everything you pay for. I want all of it. I don't want half. I don't want part. I don't want kind of free. Mm. I want everything Jesus paid for. So you come out of worship and you're just like, oh man, that was a good service. That was a good word. You know, something, tradition kills me, man. I, I have a hard time with tradition. You know, we do things out of tradition. We say things to people and people mean well and their intentions are good and, and all that. And you got to be merciful with people. Um, but man, like I'm just being honest. One of the thing, one of the pet peeves that I have is somebody coming up to me and telling me that I'm a really good worshiper. I'm like, who cares? I mean, worship leaders can, uh, other worship leaders can feel this. They know what I'm talking about. But like, it doesn't matter because what you saw was you put somebody in a place of a really good worshiper and at the same time you disqualified yourself from being a really good worshiper because you looked at a gift instead of recognizing your own access to the presence of God. See, worship has nothing to do with being able to sing or play an instrument. It's not, that's not a prerequisite for worship. Having a gifting is not a prerequisite for worship. Your only prerequisite is that Jesus bought your access. So your identity in Christ and understanding who you are as a son, where you realize, oh man, worship is just me spending time with the Father. Um, anybody watch Todd White? Look at Todd White stuff. I like Todd White. Because when I see Todd White doing evangelism, it seems like he's just hanging out with his father. And he's not trying to like manipulate or convince or scare people, or any of that. He's just like, let's go out to eat. 
and lead some people to Jesus at the same time. And he's so excited about it, and I'm like, God, I just want to be like that, man. So, like, that's what worship does. That's not something that, has hap- that, that he got right off the bat, you know what I mean? That's something that he has grown into through his lifestyle of worship. He eradicated the orphan spirit, and now he's walking as a son. All right? So it's something that happened over time as he was worshiping. So anyway, the last thing I have is, is invite and establish kingdom authority on earth. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Genesis chapter 1. This is our first instruction from God was to establish God's kingdom, to have dominion. That's what Jesus came to do. When he was here, John the Baptist preached repentance and baptized people. He preached repentance into the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand. He preached it. John the Baptist got arrested. Jesus picked up the message. If you read the order of events in the Bible, John the Baptist fades out. He has a lot of questions. He's like, why am I in jail? I did everything you told me to do. And Jesus is like, go tell him that I'm not going to get him out of jail, but it's all right, I'm here. (laughs) You know? So Jesus picks up the message. He gets baptized. He stands in there and he says, I'm anointed. The Spirit of God is upon me. He's anointed me. And he gives a list of things that he does. And Jesus preaches the kingdom and heals the sick and delivers people and sets people free and raises the dead. And that's what he does, his whole ministry. Boom, 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 preach the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. Over and over again. Oh, you're sick, now you're healed. So a worship lifestyle produces God's rulership. So what is ruling in our world right now that needs to be overthrown? You got to get into a a worship lifestyle. God wants believe. You know, if God has put a business on your heart, that's a worship lifestyle. Because we need sons and daughters, not just Christians. We need sons and daughters that know who they are in business. That can transform that realm. We need sons and daughters in the education system. We need sons and daughters in politics. We need sons and daughters everywhere where God's dominion needs to be taken. And that's part of what it means to worship. And so those are seven things that God gave me. Um, There's so much more. Like I said, I've been talking to God for about six months. There's things that I'm like, is this even true? You know, it's a conversation that I'm having with the Holy Spirit. And uh, you're invited into the conversation, okay? Um, Romans chapter 12, this is, I'm not going to read the whole thing for time, but um, it says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. King James says, this is your reasonable service. This is the only reasonable response to God's mercy, is to offer your bodies a living sacrifice. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's one will. Those are adjectives that describe one will. It's not three different wills. It's not three different levels of things that God accepts. Like, I used to think that. Like, I used to read that and think, okay, so there's a good will that God's like, I'm okay with that. Then there's a pleasing will. It's like, I'm more okay with that. And then there's a perfect will where it's like, God is really happy with you now. No. These are adjectives describing one will. (laughs) Okay? I don't know if anybody else ever thought that, but that's what it means to worship. Offer your bodies a living sacrifice. It's your reasonable response. So you're being invited into the conversation. Um, Todd, I was talking to Todd about this, and he wanted me to share what was on my heart, and I said, okay, but 
We have had some really amazing encounters in our worship rehearsals and in our worship services in the last few months or so. And uh, I really believe that God is speaking through the worship team. And so I said to Todd, I said, I said, I think we should do something a little different. So what we got is uh, Jim is going to pass out some index cards and some pens. And uh, you're going to write down a question. I want everybody to write down one question about worship, about living a worship lifestyle. Any question. The only thing I ask that you kind of steer away from is like, why don't you play my favorite song on Sunday? Like stuff like that. Yeah. Why don't we do more Jimmy Swaggart or something like that? You know. Yeah. Uh, you heard the, today's message, okay? So questions about worship, the acts of worship, uh, lifestyle of worship, those kind of questions. But you know, you know, you know, why is the music so loud or anything like that? Come talk to us personally on that. But this is for town hall meeting next week. Next week, we're going to actually have the whole worship team up here, and they're going to have these, these questions, and they're going to work through them. And then you'll also have the opportunity to ask more, because I'm sure next week it'll stir some. So heed Kevin's advice and, and request, and let's, uh, let's, let's write a question down before we leave. Yeah, whatever it is, we're going to have, that'll give us an opportunity as the team to look at the questions hear from the Holy Spirit. You know, some, one person might have the answer from the Holy Spirit, another person might not. So um, one of the things that God said to me, um, I was at a men's conference, and he said to me, you know, you can hear my voice for yourself, but I didn't call you to hear God's voice by yourself. And hearing from God is a corporate experience. It's not, a, it's not an individual experience. Um, because you can hear some crazy things that ain't God, and you need your family to round things out. So that's what we're doing here. I'm done. I love y'all. <laughs>